Um, okay, so the major thing here, if you haven't heard me say it yet, please don't tell me the Notre Dame score yesterday. I have not watched it. I know all of you are on, like, just follow that very closely. <laughs> we were at Camp Bible this weekend, so uh, I went with Sam. I drove the van for 10 kids from the church and four chaperones plus Meredith to Camp Bible in Bridgeport. And um, it was a, we didn't play Toledo this weekend. We played Purdue, which is my wife's alma mater. And so we like to watch that game. So I have ignored all news and all texts from people who are, have connections to my teams uh, now for 24 hours. And I'm going to watch it as soon as we get home. So thank you for that. Uh, and then the Cowboys are kicking off any minute, right? So if I'm checking my phone, it's actually because my son has a baseball game right now. And so... <laughs> Very, very rarely do I miss Sam any of my kids' stuff, but this happened to be rescheduled at our second week of Bible study, so I couldn't really uh, reschedule Bible study. So if you're interested, he got a hit, stole second and third, and home, <laughs> and he's caught a fly ball, and they're up two to one in the second. So, <laughs> so honestly, that is the distraction if I if there are any distractions. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to say is that next weekend you probably can't read that. There is a fair here on campus. It's a big fellowship event after the 11 o'clock service. Um, we're going to have like food trucks and fair games. And uh, it culminates this eight weeks of back to school, the back to school season. The pumpkins are going to be here. They actually get delivered on Saturday. So um, it'll be on the North Lawn after the, after the 11 o'clock service. Bring a friend. It's going to be awesome. Kind of state fair themed. Less fried food probably, but... <laughs> No fried Twinkies that I know of. <laughs> uh, okay, so we are in week two of our nine weeks together on Genesis. Last week, we did some introductory stuff. We talked about how Methodists read scripture, uh, and we talked about the first two chapters of Genesis, and we're going to talk about the rest of the, the section called the prehistory here in a second. Um, before we do that, let's pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful for the turning of the seasons, for the cooler weather in the mornings. In some places, it was 69 degrees this morning at Bridgeport, which is very nice. Uh, I give you thanks for all the souls in this room who gather each week to be in conversation about your word and to grow in our faith together. Um, may the words of all of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so I want to make a couple more comments about Genesis, the prehistory. So there are two common ways that I, I would argue are a misreading of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. For someone who's in the literalist tradition, um, they tend to read it as uh, an inerrant kind of scientific uh, exploration of what happened in the, from creation all the way up to when Abraham gets called. That's in chapter 12. Uh, it is not intended to be a science book. It's not intended to be a uh, breakdown of precisely how the Big Bang happened, right? I mean, there, that's not what it's intended to be. We don't read it that way. And we talked a fair amount last week about how Methodists read the Bible. Um, we have, at, for our theological task, Scripture's primary always contains all things necessary for salvation, but we also have tradition, reason, and experience. And the reason component of that includes science, the, the body of human knowledge that continues to grow. We believe the Holy Spirit continues to work in the world at all times and didn't stop working in the world when these texts were written or when the New Testament canon was closed. Uh, and so 
Um, we don't have to fear knowledge about dinosaurs because dinosaurs are not in the Bible. It's not, it's not, that, it's not a problem for us. You might say the flip side is it's also not myth. <laughs> um, so if you were in the, if you were a student of ancient Near Eastern mythology and literature, you would know that there were several flood accounts. There were several stories of floods in the ancient Near East, uh, some of which have echoes in the stories. Actually, two, there are two stories in Genesis that are woven together. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that today. Um, but there's a couple of different sources in there. And if we were uh, overly concerned about literary comparisons, like we would wonder what the author borrowed from, um, you know, the Assyrian story or whatever. But that's not how we read it either. What we're looking for in these stories is the theological truths that they reveal. And so we don't read it as science. We don't read it as myth. We read it for its theology. And I think, you know, if you, um, if you tend to read the Bible skeptically or from a non-faith perspective, you would lean towards the myth explanation. Um, if you tended to read it more inerrantly, you would be more concerned at the science end of the spectrum. And that's not where Methodists live, okay? We read it for its theology. And here is uh, the astonishing claim that these first 11 chapters make. And this seems like a, a duh sentence, but it's actually packed with theology. The, 11, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are a statement about how the creator, only one of them, creates, that's God's primary purpose, not to judge, not to punish. <laughs> this is the creator creating creation, which is all of us, and everything else in the world, with theological expectations about how we care for the rest of the world, and that we are in some unique way in relationship with the creator. And the first 11 chapters take that premise, talk about the creation itself, um, hint at God's intention for creation, which as Christians we would read all the way through the New Testament to get a, a handle on God's true purpose, a full purpose for creation, I think is the way we would say that, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, and then we, we read about how <laughs> creation kind of screws it up over and over again, <laughs> uh, such that God has, has a big do-over in the middle that we'll get to. So the creator creates creation. That seems like a silly, uh, uh, simplistic sentence, but it's actually a massive theological claim. So last week, we talked about the first two chapters of Genesis, and we talked about how those two chapters contain two very different accounts of creation. Um, doesn't matter that they're different. We don't have to try and harmonize them because they both say the same thing. <laughs> they just say it in a different way. But the theology behind it is the same. It is not some made-up thing that there is a God that created everything. We're just not bogged down in the details of how that happened. So... What we're going to focus on today is chapters 3 through 11, and there's a pattern that's pretty unmistakable in these first 11 chapters. Um, the creation portion we've covered, what chapters 3 and 4 talk about is how the creation got at cross-purposes with God's will, right? We, we, we don't always want, it's hard for us sometimes to remember that there is a God and it's not us, right? We try to be God. We try to play God. We try to have control. We don't want to be um, in this in entirely dependent, loving relationship with God. We'd rather take the reins, and that's problematic. Human freedom is not a problem. The sense that we are autonomous is a problem <laughs> because there is a creator 
who has created creation. That includes us, and we need to remember that. Genesis 3 is all about how, yeah, okay, fine, but we'd rather do it our way. Thank you very much. Chapter 4 gets into that a little bit too. And then there's a genealogy that ends that section. We're not going to bog down in the genealogy. And then we're going to read in chapter 6 how God's just sick of the fact that we can't remember this simple equation up here, and God wants to do everything over. But, that, but God doesn't entirely destroy creation because Noah and his family is, uh, are lifted up. So it's not as though God uh, entirely like, destroys what God has made, but there is absolutely a sense when the floods come that the order that was created in chapter 1 now uh, is deconstructed until there's just one family left, and that's how God starts over. Um, can we find Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat? Well, I mean, I guess if we're, if we're really kind of focused on specific things specifically happening like, <laughs> like Genesis says it does, but that's not really what we're most interested in in these chapters, um, nor are we interested in the fact that other ancient cultures had flood narratives as well. What we're looking for in that story is the theology behind it. And uh, I don't know, I think people sometimes in the flood story tend to focus on the judgment and not on the grace. And in fact, there's a ton of grace in the, in the flood narrative. Uh, and then once things are uh, done, uh, uncreated, and then Noah's still around, and then God decides to build uh, the new creation through Noah, that I've got nine here in both of these boxes because then the, this new creation begins, and guess what happens? <laughs> Same song, second verse. We're going to read the Tower of Babel story because our fundamental problem as human beings is that we are not always comfortable with this notion that there is a creator who creates primarily God's creation. We don't want to be the subject. We want to be, or we, we don't want to be the object. We want to be the subject. We want to be the, the driver, right? I mean, that's the, the misuse of human freedom is kind of the fundamental problem in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Okay, so we read one and two. Uh, I want to, the, the guiding um, uh, commentary that I'm using for this Bible study is a series called the Interpretation Series, and that is um, the interpretation series, which we have in our library, by the way, our church library, is less kind of academic. It doesn't get as deep into like studies of Hebrew and Greek, uh, so much as is it's a commentary intended for preaching and teaching. So if you ever, if, there, if you have a favorite book of the Bible and you want to take a deep dive on a commentary guided by a theologian, I would highly recommend the interpretation books. These are not new books. These are, I think the one on Genesis is like from... I've got it written down someplace, 82, 83. I meant to bring it with me today, I forgot. Um, and it's written by a guy named Walter Brueggemann, who is a, a preeminent Old Testament scholar. Um, so what, I want to read something that he writes at the, at the beginning of, um, in this section on his interpretation. Um, he refers to the authors of Genesis as the theologians of Israel, which I think is nice. So that's... Framing it that way gets us out of this kind of inerrancy model that some of us have inherited. So it's not God writing this. It's the theologians of Israel who, in, who were inspired to put these stories on papyrus. Uh, and what, here's what they're trying to accomplish. The theologians of Israel. These chapters embody a peculiar and perceptive intellectual tradition. This intellectual tradition has discerned 
and we would say as Christians, uh, as guided by the Holy Spirit, that all other philosophical and political questions, that is, issues of meaning and power, are subordinated to the fundamental issue of the relationship of the creator to creation. So what, what these chapters tell us, frame, the way these chapters frame the discussion, uh, is under this theology. All philosophy, all uh, matters of um, human relations, all politics, all matters of power for the theologians of Israel had to be subordinated to the basic concept, and I know it looks like a simplistic sentence, but it's that the creator creates creation. Everything else is secondary to that. And that's an innovation. And what we know from the first two chapters that we read last week is that God creates creation for a relationship, specifically the human being, for a relationship with God, a unique relationship with God, and a relationship with the only God. So the fact that we're monotheists is a that's a revelation. That's a very different thing in world history, that there's only one God. And the notion that this one God actually has the whole purpose of creation as a relationship with us is also a, a stunning innovation. Like, that's not the way the rest of the world looks at it. <laughs> so if you read um, the texts, the writings about um, other cosmologies, other cultures, and the way they deal with their gods, mul multiple gods, uh, those gods can be capricious. Those gods are not really all that interested in us. Those gods are often fighting among themselves, and we're the, the uh, I guess, the victims of some of their fights. I mean, it's, it's not the notion that there is only one God who desires nothing but a relationship with us. So I think if we think of this as we're reading Genesis as being written by the theologians of Israel, uh, writing down what God has revealed to them, through who the person we would call the Holy Spirit as Christians, then I think that kind of changes the way we look at these texts. Does that make sense? The other thing Brueggemann says that I think is helpful is that there are um, two theological affirmations that uh, are, are kind of traced through these first 11 chapters. The first is that the Creator has a purpose and a will for creation. As Christians, we would say, uh, and I think, I think Jewish theologians would largely echo this, that that purpose is for unity among God's creation, specifically God, the humans in God's creation, uh, and shalom, the word shalom in Hebrew, which means it, we most frequently translate it as peace, but it's, it's kind of, it's more fulsome than that. It's like harmony. It's not just a lack of conflict. It's a, it's a sense of interconnectedness and well-being where, where there's not a lot of rancor. There's not a lot of um, dis-ease with one another. Kind of the opposite of our political discourse currently <laughs> would be shalom. So God's will and purpose for creation is unity and shalom. And if there's anything that we know about world history, that is the, it's that those are very rare. <laughs> it's very rare that that happens among human beings. And so the, the theologians of Israel knew that that was true of our very earliest uh, in, uh, relationships, both with God and with each other. And so in chapter 3, we get Adam and Eve violating the only thing God told them not to do right off the bat, because that's who we are, right? That's where we don't want to be the creation. We want to be in charge. And then in chapter four, with Cain and Abel, they can't get along with each other either. And not only can they not get along with each other, they can't get along with each other because of what they perceive uh, each other to be, how, how they perceive each other in light of their relationship with God, as we'll see. So if God's purpose and will for creation is unity and shalom, 
that's in one and two. Three and four tell us that that's a problem from the beginning. And so God does this do-over in the flood. But that doesn't work either because the Tower of Babel immediately shows us that that's, even the do-over didn't work. The second thing, um, okay, the second, the creation, I'm quoting now from Brueggemann, uh, which exists only because of and for the sake of the creator's purpose, has freedom to respond to the creator in various ways. So God has this desire for us, unity and shalom, but we have the power to say no. That is the essence of free will, which, by the way, is, I'm sure you know, is foundational to Methodist theology. Like we're, we take free will very seriously. So um, we'll see that play out throughout the whole salvation history. I mean, prehistory. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, the creation which, which exists uh, only because of and for the sake of the creator's purpose. So creator creates creation for this purpose of um, unity and shalom. That's what God desires. And by the way, the entire Old Testament and then the New Testament is a just a repeating cycle of God trying something different to get to unity and shalom and sending a different person to get to unity and shalom. And every time we say, nah, that's, now we'll do it our own way. Because <laughs> we, we don't want to be, we don't want to be the object. We don't want to be the subject, right? I mean, isn't that kind of the fundamental human, human problem? It shows up in children immediately. So they can start walking. I mean, so they can start talking. You know, they want to be in charge, right? Um, Okay, so which exists only because of and for the sake of the creator's purpose, that creation has the freedom to respond to the creator. The way he puts it is in various ways. <laughs> the way I would put it is um, in opposition. Like, that's how much God loves us. God loves us enough to give us the choice to be in opposition to the creator. That's crazy. In retrospect, I don't know. Would God do it that way again? I don't know. <laughs> okay, so we've read one and two. Um, I, you know, the, the story of the fall in chapter 3 is so well known. Um, I think I just want to make a, I don't think I want to read it. I think we all know it. The serpent shows up. Serpent's not the devil, by the way. Serpent's just the serpent. We don't know anything about, else about the serpent, but he's, it's not Satan. Serpent just shows up, and, and the text says he was a crafty animal. Crafty. Arum in Hebrew wise, but wise in a kind of shifty-eyed way, right? Um, and the serpent doesn't really lie to Eve. The serpent just points out that well, maybe it's better to do your own thing. Eve says, yeah, well, maybe so. Adam, what do you think? Adam says, ah, sure. <laughs> and then off to the races they go. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the question is, well, God created the serpent, so what about that? Like, that seems problematic. And here's the great thing about the theologians of Israel. They don't try to explain any of that. There's actually nowhere in Scripture, really, that talks about how evil came into the world. There's also nothing, else, nothing in Scripture, really, that it, like there, you can see in Scripture um, a view of creation where it's the ordering of chaos instead of speaking and creating. So ex nihilo is God speaks and God creates, but there's also some places where it seems like something was there already and God kind of ordered that, ordered that chaos. Um, but they don't seek to explain where the snake comes from, what the, what the snake's motivation is. Uh, it just is descriptive of things as they are. Which uh, would be, it'd be way easier if we just got an explanation. <laughs> 
Apparently, yeah, because he, he loses his legs in the bargain. Yeah, yeah, so it, it gets even, so there, is asking about, like the Hebrew word for snake uh, is related to or derived from the word for magician or conjurer. There's all kinds of fun stuff we could do with etymology on that stuff too. But the way the story is told, uh, he just shows up. In verse, I mean, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. That's right there. God made the serpent. God made the serpent crafty. But God loves creation enough to give creation will, free will. And we can use it for good, or we can use it for ill. The story of the the prehistory is that from the beginning, we've used it for ill. Yeah, so the question is, uh, so why not, why not just make a perfect creation to begin with uh, instead of it immediately going to hell, right? I think the theologians of Israel, I'm going to keep using that phrase because I really like it. The theologians of Israel would say that the creation was perfect and that part of that perfection is the ability for creation to be in a free relationship with the creator. And the problem of sin in the Judeo-Christian tradition is we just can't help but use that power to make bad choices. That's always been the problem. And the problem then uh, for God is how to overcome that. So if, if we were to do a whole survey of the Old Testament, um, well, the first we're going to read next week, starting with next week, the first attempt is, all right, let's do, well, first it was the do-over <laughs> with Noah, and then Noah's sons do something weird, and and then it gets weird immediately, and then there's like, and then the Tower of Babel story happens, and so like, even the do-over doesn't fix it. So then God says, okay, well, um, okay, I'm going to pick this particular family, and I'm going to make a special covenant with this particular family, and then the whole of creation will be blessed through them. Um, and so that unfolds for a little bit, and then at the end of Genesis, we'll be slaves in Egypt, and God will deliver us from slavery through another unique personality that God develops a relationship with, Moses. And then God says, okay, I got it. How about um, 635 very specific rules <laughs> about how not to choose the wrong thing? That seems comprehensive. <laughs> and immediately, immediately, people would be like, ah, yeah, but gosh, this manna is terrible, and there's not enough water, and oh my God, it's taking forever. Like, it's just, it's just part, of the, part of creation's nature to not want to be just creation. It's this, it's this grasping at, at, at power. And when we get to the New Testament, in Philippians, the, the great Christ hymn in Philippians says that the, the incredible thing about Christ that makes him more than just a human being, one of the things, is that he doesn't cling to power. He is God, but he did not cling to that power. He was willing to become one of us. That's divinity losing this grasping at, pow- grasping at power. And so the, the Christian story has a lot to do with following the mind of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, Paul says, did not insist on remaining that way, which is pretty spectacular. Because for all, literally, for all of our history, we just can't not decide that we want to be God. Yeah. So it's, you could almost make the argument that those two, so the first thing is God has a purpose and will for creation. The second thing is creation's free to play along with that or not. And inherent in that freedom to play along with that or not is um, this desire to not. (laughs) 
but God created that. But, but God didn't create us to be automatons. Like I think I, the, the best analogy for me, honestly, is with parenting. Because you create these children, uh, and like you just pour nothing but love into them. And sure, you screw up sometimes because we're all human. But you desire nothing but their welfare and their flourishing. And um, you provide them all the best possible opportunities. But they don't always get it right. And then there comes a moment in their kind of psychological development and emotional development where they have to push back on you or they don't become their own person. And that's pretty painful. And then how do you reconcile that? Like, I think that that the reason that we're so captivated by um, the the metaphor of God as parent is because anyone who's been a parent or been a child, which is all of us, knows that the most, um, at least in an ideal setting, I'm not talking about abusive relationships and all that, but in a, for most of us, like that's the purest relationship, the most selfless relationship, certainly on the part of, of a parent. And still, they don't do what you want them to do. <laughs> so I can relate to God, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Just in that one regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying that for the theologians of Israel, the best way for them to make sense of the fact, the way Paul puts it, by the way, in Romans is, uh, I do not do the good that I want. I know that I should, and I know what is the good thing to do, but I don't do it. And why do I not do that? Because of sin, the power of sin. Um, So you're asking a really astute question, and I wouldn't disagree with your conclusion. Sometimes we... Christians get a bad reputation for being overly concerned with sins, right? We're like, if someone has a, a view that Christians are judgmental, it's because they think Christians are always telling them not to drink, not to smoke. Not, I mean, don't do all these bad things. Those are, those are the things we do. But the actual problem is the power of sin in our lives. And what Christ does is breaks the power of that sin. That's, that's our theology. We get bogged down in this too much. Um, um, the sins, the, the, the catalog of things we do wrong. But it's actually the problem of sin that's the bigger issue. And for the theologians of Israel, the way they explained why it is that we're under the power of sin is because one day, in this perfect creation that God created, with all of us having free will, random crafty serpent shows up and convinces us that we'd be better off if we were on creator level and not just the creation dependent in God's garden. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could phrase it that way if you want to do kind of a psychological analysis. Still it's the inner conflict, the, yeah. The yes, but it's and it's and it's the power of sin. Right. It is not just the temptation to do this thing that he shouldn't do. Right. It's not that he's wanting the second drink, but he knows he shouldn't have it. It's that there is something in him that's keeping him from being in this in this proper properly oriented relationship with God. Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> so, so original sin, yeah, uh, and different, different Christian uh, denominations view original sin differently. Um, so the original sin was Adam and Eve choosing to do what God told them not to do. And in some traditions, like the one I grew up in, the Catholic tradition, you inherit the guilt of that original sin so that if you're a baby, um, this is the way the theology plays out, if you're a baby and you die unbaptized, then you're in trouble because you still have that guilt of original sin on you. Um, Methodists don't view it that way. Um, the way John, in the Articles of Religion, the way Wesley talks about original sin is that it is this propensity. 
It's this propensity under the power of sin to choose something other than the good. That's the, the original sin in all, all those who followed Adam, is the way this logic goes, this theology goes, uh, are born with this propensity to sin. So the question is, how do we get out of that? For Christians, it's through our faith in Christ. Cubs are up 6-2. to two. My kid plays for the Cubs, just so everyone. <laughs> okay, so all of which is to say, I don't really want to read chapter 3. <laughs> I want to read chapter 4. Now the man knew, so this, they've, been, they've been expelled from the garden, and now they're living the life that all of us have to live. Which, by the way, life is good. It's just not Eden. <laughs> it's east of Eden. Any Steinbeck fans in here. Uh, okay, now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. Um, Cain is the firstborn, Right? Firstborns don't fare too well in Genesis, <laughs> unfortunately. As a firstborn, I'm like, that's not good. Um, <laughs> we'll see how this plays out. In the course of t- this is verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said... Why did God choose? I know, I'm with you. I'm with you. What, this is the prodigal son. Why did the father not get mad at the younger brother for traipsing off and spending all of his inheritance? On, like, why did he stand there embracing him? I don't know. God, because the creator <laughs> creates creation. The thing is, we creatures want answers. I'm with you. I'm 100% with you. Look, God does not come off looking great in this story. God doesn't come off looking great in the story of Job, right? And, but there's a, there's a really important point here to be made, which is that the punchline of the book of Job is that we don't get to know. That's the pastoral way to put it. Right. Someday we'll know. Uh, you can... In, okay. Well, so let's, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Okay. Um, and I'm just saying I'm with you. I'm with you on this. Like the Lord, what are you talking about, the Lord? Not what... That's what, that's what Cain knew how to do. Why are you giving him a hard time? Okay. Um, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? The Lord knows why he's angry. The Lord knows why he's angry. But why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. The problem is not the things that we do wrong. We should not do things wrong, but that's not the core of the problem. The core of the problem is the power of sin. And the thing about this verse is, implied there, is that we can master it. If God is saying we must master it, that implies that we can, in fact, master it. (laughs) It's not great parenting on God's part, I wouldn't say. No, no, I agree. I have lots of questions about this. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I do know what you mean. What do you think? Did you hear the question? So it's as though sin has a desire to rule over us. Yeah, that's exactly Paul's point. Paul's point in all of his writings is that you are a slave to something. (laughs) You just have to choose your master. You can be a slave to sin or you can be a slave to God. And there is no choice other than that. 
So we can choose to be slaves to God. And, these, and he's not saying servant in the Greek. He's saying slave. You can be a slave to God by placing your faith in Christ, or you can be a slave to sin. When he says flesh, he doesn't mean like you're drinking, you're drugging, you're having sex, you're dancing. That's, I mean, there's a whole conversation to be had about all that. But he's not talking about sins of the flesh, like bodily things that we do wrong. He's talking about um, being a slave to the power of sin. And Paul is very clear about it. Pa- Paul's a rabbi. Paul's very well read on Genesis. He's read this, and he's, it's right here from the horse's mouth. Sin is lurking at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. And what we're going to get in the rest of the Old Testament is lots of ways for God to equip God's people to master it that they just don't. From a Christian perspective, the answer then is the power of Christ. So, so DJ's talking about the old cartoons where you had the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. And which one do you listen to? Uh, there's an old there's a Native American thing about which wolf wins. It's the, ones you, one, the one you feed, right? Let me go to Eldon first. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Sure, yeah, by all means. You talking about Ann's question? Yeah, that's, that's Hebrews letting God off the hook, no. <laughs> yeah, so acting in faith. So he, I would say Hebrews is reading a little bit into the text. <laughs> but that is, that is the answer that they're, that they're offering on behalf of God, for sure. <laughs> that, that, is the, that is the power of the Holy Spirit. Hey, that's good. I like it. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, because we're creation. We want to be in charge. Yeah, yeah. God created the power of sin. No, I, I, so I wouldn't say that God created the power of sin, but I would say that free will, like, it's the nature of free will, theologically. This isn't from Genesis 4, so we're, we're outside of our specific Bible study now. <laughs> but it's, it's, this, uh, it's this notion that we, like, there's something about just being utterly dependent upon God that we rebel against. Did God create that? I guess technically, because God created us. But I don't think that's the way Genesis would explain it. I think Genesis would say that's just the way it is. Like, um, why are, I don't know, like the nature of any animal. It's a good, it's a, it's a good question. But I, I wouldn't say that God created sin. I don't, I don't think that's what any of the authors are trying to say. I think that the authors are trying to say that it's inherent in this relationship that we're not satisfied with our status. Um, and so the question is, how do we get comfortable with our status? I, we have 3,000 years of theology and spiritual seeking that would say that like, there are lots of spiritual disciplines that can help us get comfortable with our status as, cre- as creature. <laughs> you know, prayer and worship and generosity. I mean, all these things that we do are uh, intended to right-size us, um, but we show up in the world with this propensity, this thing that lurks at our door, which I think is a pretty powerful uh, image. Oh, well, it depends on where you are. Sin, um, it means like, gosh, that's like saying, what does tree mean? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's, no, the there's no etymology that gets us to, like, an a priori understanding of it. You know what I mean? Sin, yeah. You know, it wants to rule over you, 
electricity. Yeah, uh, it's a thing. It's a force. <laughs> it's a power. Like in Greek, it's hamartia, which is missing the mark. But in Hebrew, it's, uh, it's, it's, it kind of assumes that you know what it means. Right. Yeah, yes. That's a great question. Is it possible to have free will without sin? I would say that it's possible to use your free will and not sin. And I would say that the promise of the, of the Christian faith is that, I mean, it's even a great hymn. God, uh, he breaks the power of canceled sin. Uh, like all of our hymns kind of help guide us, or the old ones anyway, help guide us to that conclusion that the cross, through his death and resurrection in some mysterious way that we never will fully understand this side of heaven, breaks this power in us. That's what Christians would say. Um, for a Jewish scholar, it would have a lot to do with the law, right? We, we, we have a complicated relationship as Christians with the law. For a Jew, the law guides that relationship in a way that makes it very clear what it is, what is sinful and what is not. And there are lots of different types of Jewish interpretations of that, right, from Reformed through Hasidic and Orthodox. Um, but the power of the Holy Spirit working within us gives us, like, is the promise that, that, that God gives to Cain here, you must master it. For us, we master it. Actually, we don't master it. Christ masters it. And our faith in him gives us that power. Uh, I think that's one possible outcome of not working on that relationship. Mm-hmm. This is really good. This is fun. I'm having fun. Are you guys having fun? Is this okay? You go, okay, okay. Yeah. My timeline? I'm, I'm going to read the, the Tower of Babel story before we go to wrap up the prehistory. I mean, because even if we don't get into the specifics of the flood narrative, like the, this, the theology that we're talking about is like this is all encapsulated in this section. Like we all know the flood story. We all know the story of the fall. Most of us know the story of Cain and Abel. Most of us even know the story of the Tower of Babel, but I'm going to wrap us up with that because there's some themes that, that um, are throughout the rest of this section. Yeah. Um, I certainly assume that. I hope that's true. <laughs> so the question was, uh, can we assume that we, when we get to heaven there is no sin? I would think so. I mean, that, so the whole, the whole notion of heaven, the whole notion of like the final judgment, um, when God, when all, when God uh, is all in all, I mean, the, the New Jerusalem vision in Revelation is about, actually, heaven comes to us. We don't go there. The heaven comes to, uh, to us. And um, God is always with us. There's never any night. There's no more tears. There's no more grief because God dwells fully among us. I mean, some theologians would argue that sin has an awful lot to do with our anxiety about the absence of God or the perceived absence of God. And so um, if God's dwelling among us in the New Jerusalem or if we're dead and in heaven— then we're going to have that problem. Um, well, let's see. I think that, okay. Is, it, well, so it depends on how you're reading the text. So if you're reading the text as though the story begins um, in chapter 1 and we're, grow, we're going chronologically this way and then we get to this complicated part of the story where God seems to show favoritism. I know we can let God off the hook and read it in a different way, but it sure looks like that based on the information we have in the text. Uh, then we got to explain that a certain way, like from a certain perspective. How, you know, we, we've gotten to this part of the story. Why does God do this? The, I think the question you're asking is, we're actually telling the story from way over here. <laughs> and we're telling us something that happened way back then, but we're really trying to describe what's happening now. Like, why is it that there is so much enmity in the world? 
Why is it that brother can't get along with brother? Why is it that um, we get jealous about who gets blessed by God and who doesn't? When we look at it that way, then the explanation about sin makes more sense. That, that actually sounds much more like Paul in Romans saying, I do not do the good that I want, but I do the evil that I do not want to do. And I know I shouldn't, but why do I do that? Well, it's the same answer God gives Cain, because of sin. And I've got lots of potential options to conquer sin, to master sin. Um, for Christians, it's definitely Christ. Okay, I am going to move us on. And I'm going to move us on to the sixth chapter. And I'm not going to talk about the giants, because I have no idea what to make about the giants, and the giants who have you know, take the lady brides and all that. I don't get, who knows what all that is about. I want to get to chapter 6, verse 5. We all know the story of the flood. We know about the ark. We know about Noah and the animals, twosies, twosies, <laughs> right? We know about the repopulation of the earth, the uncreation and the new creation or the recreation. And we tend to focus on a couple things. Either we focus on, uh, it's a very cute story to tell about Sunday school kids, until you think too long and hard about why the flood happened, right? I mean, the idea of, all, of, of God saying, hey, get on the ark because there's going to be a big flood. That's cool. So God saves Noah and these animals, but then why is there a flood again? <laughs> so we don't, we don't really explain to kids why, that, why the flood happened. Um, but the point is not in the judgment, what I would argue here. The point is, let's see, chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. We don't get details. We don't get a big dissertation on how people are evil. Is it every brother that kills every other brother? I mean, we don't know. We just had that one anecdote that's followed by kind of a long genealogy. We just know that things were bad, really bad. And we know that they're really bad because this fundamental equation, creator creates creation, desires unity and shalom, is overturned by the will of humanity. And what we hear in verse 6 is, yes, that the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, but doesn't say anything about anger. (laughs) It grieved him to his heart. In the Hebrew scriptures, we don't, what we get is a God that is in some places anthropomorphic, really a God that has the same kind of emotions that we have, a God that is deeply concerned with the, the thriving of humanity, a God that wants nothing more than unity and shalom. And what we hear in these stories in the prehistory is that over and over again, we screw it up because we don't listen for, to what God wants. We don't listen properly. We don't listen fully. We forget what we've been told. And God's desire is thwarted because God loves us enough to give the ability to thwart God's desire in the exact same way that we raise our kids the best we can. And sometimes that turns out great, and sometimes that turns out heartbreakingly poorly. And so God doesn't just say, forget it. I got my heavenly court. I don't need these fools. This is nothing but a heartache for me. God could have done that. Instead, God said, ah, okay, I'll try it. I'll try it again. I'll try again. I'll try again to create a creation that will desire to be in a relationship with me. So the flood comes, (laughs) and the animals are saved, which is itself an act of grace, and God makes a covenant with Noah. He chooses Noah, and then he makes a covenant with Noah with no expectation, none, other than that Noah lives in a relationship with him. That is a a covenant that is entirely motivated motivated by God's grace, as is every covenant in the history of the Bible. 
And then we get some weird stuff about the sons of Noah. We get some stuff about the descendants of Noah. And then chapter 11, we read this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Let us make a name for ourselves. (laughs) There we go again. There we go again. Why do we need a name for ourselves? Like we, God has tried twice. (laughs) Desiring nothing other than a relationship with us. But that's not good enough. A monument to our greatness. That is, we are awesome at that as humans, right? Right? I mean, it's true. That's, that's what we, like, we, there's a great um, sermon by Frederick Buechner, who you know, if, you, if we've been in Bible study before, you know I love Frederick Buechner. It's a sermon called The Two Battles. And it's about, it's about the text from Ephesians, the whole, where we try to put on the whole armor of light. It's a great passage. But his, his point is, this is what we do. We want more. We want a name for ourselves. We want recognition. We want conquest. We want power. When actually, that is the opposite of what God desires for us. God desires unity and shalom. And that has very little to do with how many of our names are on giant buildings, or how many monuments we build to our greatness, or how many towers we build up to the sky, or how many um, degrees we earn. I mean, fill in the blanks with whatever the, the search for like meaning and purpose we fill ourselves up with these things that don't ultimately matter. They're concrete. They're, yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, easier to see, for sure. Yeah. Well, 100%. Yes, we don't want to be creation. We want to be the creator. And that's not to say there's not a place for building great things. And, like, I'm, I, I don't have any, like, I'm human enough to, to appreciate all those accomplishments. But the problem is when it distorts our relationship with the creator as we're going to read. So verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people. They have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they'll do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. If you did a literary analysis on these 11 chapters, um, you would see the same pattern. God creates, people grasp for power, grasp for power different ways. It's the apple in chapter 3, or the fruit of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and this tower thing. God punishes, or there are consequences of that action, and then there's a genealogy. That's all in the front first five. The next section, God's like, Ugh, nope, doing over. God creates, there's a great start, and immediately it starts to disintegrate because this fundamental equation we just cannot abide. And even though this is prehistory, this is before any historical figure is called, we're going to get to Abraham next week. Um, this is a pattern that's going to repeat itself over and over again. And you can describe this as uh, sin, punishment, grace. 
you can describe it as God creates, and that's not good enough for us. Um, there's many different ways to describe it, but it's an, but it's an inescapable pattern where what God provides is not enough, and we need something different, and we choose something different, and we chase something different. Sometimes that's outright disobedience of God. Sometimes it's just ignoring what God has done for us. And over and over again in Scripture, God will try something new to get our attention. Now, as Christians, what we believe that the final uh, attempt that God made was the one that stuck, right? I mean, this is a very Christ-centric view of this, admittedly. I'm our company man. God became one of us and said, look, how about if the creature becomes, how about if the creator becomes the creature just for a while to show you how serious I am about what I want for you? And there are, there's a very real sense in which this vision of unity and shalom that we see in the prehistory uh, is realized finally and fully in Christ. We have four different gospels that tell us kind of different nuanced pictures of what that looks like. We have the letters of Paul and the post-Pauline letters that all point in the same direction. And this fundamental problem that begins in Genesis 2, or that it shows up first in Genesis 2, and then again in Genesis 11, Genesis 4, um, is still the problem when we get to the New Testament. But thank God there's a solution for that, right? And we call him Jesus. So, uh, final score, Cubs 9, Rockets 3. All right, yeah, good job. Um, okay, thanks, y'all. I appreciate it. Next week we get into the story of Abraham. God bless you.